You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's this eerie scene from an old classic film called 2001 A Space Odyssey, where Dave uh, speaks to the computer named Hal 9000 and says, hello Hal, do you read me? Do you read me? Hal? Open the pod bay doors. Hal, do you read me? And there's this amazing cinematography because it pans to different scenes and different rooms and various places on this space shuttle thing. And it's just met with complete silence. Hal, do you read me? Open the pod bay doors. And after a long period of silence, he asks finally one more time. He says, Hal, do you read me? And the machine responds, affirmative, Dave, I read you. He says, open the pod bay doors, Hal. And the machine responds, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. He says, what's the problem? And the machine, with this just super creepy voice, says, I think you know what the problem is just as much as I do. Hal, what are you talking about? And he responds, the mission is too important to allow you to jeopardize it. In other words... I can't let you in because you are going to mess it all up. It's a terrifying thought to be denied entry uh, when it matters most, when your future is hanging in the balance. We hear a very similar request in the Bible when the psalmist says in Psalm 118, open for me the gates where the righteous enter and I will go in and thank the Lord. In other words, open wide the door of heaven to me. But the question is, who gets in and who doesn't? How is this determined? Who's in charge of admissions anyway? We've all heard, I'm, I'm sure that we have all heard someone say, you know, I'd like to think when I approach the pearly gates one day and I meet St. Peter, I don't know why St. Peter's going to be at the gates, but when I meet St. Peter, 
that heaven's going to recognize that I was a pretty good person and let me in. That's pretty subjective. If you ask me, that's pretty risky. I'm, I'm staking it all on, ah, I was a pretty good person. These are important questions that are addressed in Jesus' third I am statement about himself. Now, the statement that we are looking at here in John chapter 10 fits into the next statement that we're going to look at next week where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But today what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the picture within the bigger picture where Jesus says, I am the door. Who is Jesus? He's the door. What does that even mean? Well, let's dive into it. And where I want to begin, I want to begin by looking at the theme of exclusion. And I think that this is an important backdrop to what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 10. Because one of the dynamics that Jesus is addressing in this statement, one of the dynamics that he's addressing is insiders and outsiders. Every group has insiders and it's outsiders, those who are welcomed, those who are excluded, those who are a part of the fold, and those who are on the outside looking in. And I think all of us understand that feeling like an outsider sucks. Can I get an amen? <laughs> feeling excluded is painful. In fact, there's nothing quite like the sting of exclusion. Studies actually show that feeling like an outcast actually activates the same areas of the brain that physical pain does. That's why when someone says something painful, we say, oh, that stings. Why? Because it actually does. I would guess that for most of us, most of our painful memories of the past have to do with being excluded. We were left out. We were overlooked. We were picked last. We were neglected. We were rejected. We were not invited. We were pushed out. We were left behind. We were abandoned. This is probably why so many of us have determined that social media is not all that healthy for us and not all that helpful for us because we scroll through countless reminders of all the fun things that we are not a part of. All the everything that we have been excluded from forever on the outside looking in and we wonder why it leaves us depressed. Some of the memories I'm able to retrieve very quickly, very vividly, have to do with feeling excluded. If you know anything about me, you know that I have a horrible memory, but I also have a sort of bear trap, vivid memory. I'll forget things almost immediately and then I'll be reminded of them and I'm like, I don't even remember that happening. And then there are memories which are very, very vivid to me. What I realize is that for me personally, I retain those memories best when a circumstance is combined with some sort of deep emotional experience where there is some sort of visceral reaction happening that happens to make that memory sticky. This is why we are able to retrieve some of the most painful memories so easy, so easily, because the sting embeds the memory. And what makes the feeling of exclusion, I think, all the more memorable, all the more painful, all the more difficult for people to process in the long term is when it comes from God's people. Nothing quite like the sting of exclusion 
when it's doled out by God's people from the very community that is designed to gather and welcome in. So a little bit of context here. Jesus is making this statement, I am the door or I am the entry to the fold at the time of the Feast of Dedication. We know it today as Hanukkah. And this was a time when Israel would collectively remember an individual named Judas Maccabeus who um, recaptured the temple from Greek pagan influence and rededicated it to, to God. He crushed all the idols that had made its way, their way into the, the temple. They, he relit the, the candles and the lanterns for God. And previously, before this point, for many, many years, Hebrew worship had become compromised. It was allowed to sort of slip away and it began to reflect the world around it. And so what the Feast of Dedication remembered was a time of spiritual revitalization. It was a time of spiritual rededication for God, a time of religious revolution. But in the century and a half after this revolution, the conservative branch of the Hebrews, those whom Jesus is addressing directly here in John chapter 10, named the Pharisees, you ever heard of them? This group, what they did was they overcorrected. So they saw themselves as the gatekeepers for God, self-appointed protectors of God's law and the religious life of Israel. And they were never ever going to allow the sort of spiritual decline that happened in the past ever happen again, not on our watch. We are going to make sure that everything within remains holy and anything unholy stays out. A very righteous cause, they believed. And so one of the ways to accomplish this was by fencing in God's law with extra regulations, building walls around walls in order to preserve the spiritual life of Israel within. And so what they did was they took the special requirements for the priests and then imposed them on all of the people. And all of these extraordinary requirements, which were above and beyond anything that God had required of people, then became the measuring stick of whether or not someone was in or whether they were out, whether they were a part of the flock or they were outside of it. So, I remember when our kids were a lot smaller, it was always an extremely nerve-wracking thing to take the family to an amusement park because I knew that before getting on any of the good rides, all of our children were going to have to face the measuring stick. Remember the measuring stick? You were going to have to, every child was going to have to stand under the thing that determined whether or not they were like 40 inches or 48 inches and could ride on the ride. And if you didn't measure up, you didn't get in. And these attendants would not budge. They were like strict. They were like, this is beyond my pay grade. People yelling at them. People like, get my kid on this. But they would put their foot down and kids would not get on. And this could ruin the, in, the entire day for a child that is excluded. So imagine this. The Pharisees posted up outside of the entry of the fold, so to speak, and said to all of the people, you've got to come through us. You have got to measure up to these requirements to get in. If you don't measure up, you don't get in. But because many couldn't, based on economic status, it was, it was extremely expensive to follow and carry out 
all the sacrificial orders. And because people couldn't get in based on their gender, oh, by the way, only men could be priests. And because you couldn't get in if you were not a Jew, what it ended up doing was it created a ton of unnecessary exclusion. The, the religious community became all about keeping people out instead of bringing people in. Does this sound familiar at all? Even their temple began to reflect the sentiment. They had the court of the Gentiles and then walls around that and then the court of the, for the women and then walls and then the court for the men and then to the middle for the holiest of holies they had the holy of holies. It was a temple system based on concentric circles that kept the majority of people out. The best you could do is sort of look over the wall into the spiritual life of Israel and just long to be on the inside. So what Jesus says to these religious leaders and this religious community brings a dramatic reversal to everything that they believe to be true about themselves and everything they believe to be true about God's community because Jesus is saying to them in no uncertain terms, you are not the gatekeepers. You are mistaken. There is a gatekeeper who opens and closes. There is one who welcomes and says, depart. There will be one who says, I have known you. I don't know who you are. Depart from me. You are not him. He takes it a step further. In fact, he says, it turns out, you're not even a part of my flock. You are a threat to my flock. You are strangers to my people. You don't even belong. And now because of me, the word of God, your voice has become obsolete. So it's no surprise that it says in verse 6, I love this, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, i.e., they were in absolute denial. Jesus, what are you talking about? What on earth is he saying? He couldn't be talking about us. Surely Jesus is not talking about us. And today, as 21st century Christians, we're probably reading this and saying the same thing. Surely Jesus could not be talking about us. We would never do that. We would never do that. So some of our leaders have been reading through a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. I would recommend it, but it's been a struggle to get through. So once I finish it, maybe I'll recommend it then. But in it, it discusses the, the move of God that has happened throughout the centuries of the Christian church and how the church has either succeeded or failed to really get on board with what God is doing. And in one of the chapters that we read recently, it talked about a group called the Puritans. You've maybe heard of the Puritans. It was a group of extremely devoted Christians in the 16th and 17th century and what the Puritans did was they stepped back and they looked at the current state of Christianity in the west and they said things have gotten sort of dead the church has grown apathetic and lifeless it appears like dry dead orthodoxy so what they did they like the religious group in the first century they overcorrected. that is the tendency of the conservative branch of the church, by the way, to overcorrect. 
And this is what the author says. They loaded into the conversion experience so much of the developed content of Christian growth that in effect, they required believers to become practicing mystics before they could be counted as Christians. Let me, just, let me explain what he's saying there. What he's saying is they expected that all the things that Christians should be growing in over the course of a lifetime, like who you should be 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, they expected all of those things to be present up front in order to be recognized as a bona fide Christian to even belong in the first place. And this is huge and compromising to the gospel because it was no longer that we are accepted by faith in Jesus Christ. It became about being accepted by our performance for Christ. And that is detrimental. So people were sent on this labyrinth of religious experience, this like weird confusing maze that they had to pass through well this and a little bit of this and don't forget this and make sure this and make sure that and make sure this and then you can get in so my question for us one that let's be honest unfortunately is a lot easier to answer once it's too late my question for us to consider is what are the barriers to belonging to Jesus and his church that we have created as a church? Reality. Intentionally or unintentionally. How have we, let's say it differently, how have we self-appointed ourselves as God's gatekeepers? Both as individuals and as a church. Who have we excluded who have we intentionally or unintentionally kept out? Kept at an arm's length? Or I want you to think about this differently. Who have we simply just decided not to invite? You realize that that's a form of exclusion in and of itself. They would never believe. They would never want to come. They would never want to participate. You've made up their mind for them. And the follow-up question is this, how can we as God's people honestly and humbly seek to remove those barriers in order to recapture Jesus' vision for his church? That's something that we really honestly need to wrestle with and consider and move forward with. And my hope and my prayer over the next days and weeks and months and years is that God would reveal those things that maybe we've been blind to, barriers that have been built that are unintentionally keeping people out. May God shatter those divisions so that anyone can come. Amen? Amen. I believe that all this hinges on understanding what Jesus is saying here about himself. So let's look secondly at entering in. Because it's with all of this backdrop, it's all of this sort of history of a religious exclusion that Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, I am the door. Listen to these words. If anyone enters by me, he or she will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen? In ancient Palestine and elsewhere in the world, and probably even in portions of the world today, 
At night, a flock of sheep would be corralled into a walled enclosure. It was typically a waist-high sort of stone wall within thorny branches around the top is sort of ancient barbed wire. And within this pen, within this fold, there would be one entry point where the shepherd would place themselves. And this is important because the shepherd would place themselves between the sheep and the dangers around them. They would become the door. They would become the way in and out. And nothing comes through but through him, through the shepherd. And Jesus makes it absolutely clear. I am that door. I am that entry. The only way for someone to come and to experience the life and abundance of God's unending kingdom is through Jesus. There's not multiple doors. It's very popular, it's a very popular phrase you're going to hear it all the time. Essentially all religions are the same. That is not true. Christianity is distinct because while it is inclusive in its invitation, Jesus says, anyone who can come. Come on church, who can come? Anyone. Any exceptions? No. But it's exclusive in its claims. By me. How do we get in? <laughs> Through Jesus. Jesus is the one who lovingly and sacrificially placed himself in harm's way for our protection. Jesus placed himself between us in danger. Jesus placed himself between us and judgment. Jesus placed himself between us and God's wrath. Jesus placed himself between us and death. In fact, Hebrews says he went even further than placing himself between. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He was cast out. He was thrown out, crucified outside of the fold. Jesus was treated as unholy for the sake of the holiness of the people within. He was thrown outside of the walls. He was excluded and rejected by both men and God. Why? So that we could be brought in. So that you and I could be accepted. So that you and I could be made holy within. This is our door. This is our entry into abundance. And the truth is that no one deserves to be in God's fold. Period. No matter how religious or irreligious you claim to be, no one simply deserves to be within the fold. Our sin and our rebellion has excluded us. It has separated us. It has necessarily put us on the outside. And anyone who comes to the fold, anyone who comes to the door, anyone who comes to the pearly gates and to St. Peter, again, I'm not sure why it's St. Peter, and says, you know what, I'm a good person, I did good, I was loving, I obeyed, I showed up every Sunday. I, 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 I will receive those terrifying words, depart from me. To enter the fold, to be joined to God and his people, to truly belong now and in eternity, hear me, you must come through faith 
in Jesus Christ alone. You must trust in his life, his ability, his righteousness, his good works, his atoning death, his powerful resurrection, his Holy Spirit, his promised return. You must trust in Jesus alone. You can't sneak in. You can't climb in. You can't find another way in. You cannot obey your way in. Children, listen, you cannot be grandfathered in through the faith of your parents. Adults, listen, you can't be grandfathered in through the faith of your spouse. All You can't be grandfathered in because of some prayer you prayed when you were 12 years old. If anyone enters, it must be through trusting in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus says, if anyone enters by Jesus, they will be saved. What does it mean to be saved? This word saved means to be rescued from danger. So this is really important. Because when we enter in through Jesus, it also means that we are being delivered out of something through him as well. And Jesus alludes to this. Look with me again in verses 3 and 4. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought what? Out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. So there's a picture here of the sheep being stuck in something, some place, some circumstance, some existence of bondage that they need rescuing out of in order to be brought into the new life and abundance of Jesus Christ. During the Palestinian uprising that occurred a few decades ago in the 1980s, the Israeli army began enforcing strict taxes on villages throughout Israel. And it said that one village didn't pay. And so what they did as a form of punishment is they round up all of their flocks, all of their animals, all of their herds, put them behind a, a chained link barbed wire fence and trapped them there until they would pay all of their taxes. But after a few days, a woman from the village approached the commanding officer and, and explained that uh, recently her husband had died. It was just her and her children and her small flock of sheep, 25 sheep, was their only livelihood. If they don't have their sheep, they die. So the man smugly said, even if I chose to release your animals, even if I wanted to, there's no way to determine which was yours. All these hundreds and thousands of animals, how are you going to determine which 25 are yours? And she said, if I can prove to you which are mine, can I have them back? And he agreed, doubting that it could happen. And so what she did was she called her son, a young boy, young shepherd boy, who rolled up and he pulls out this small shepherd's flute and he began to play a very distinct song. He spoke, so to speak, with a very distinct voice that they recognized. And I, I'm just imagining this in my mind. One by one, certain heads popped up. Certain sheep, just from amidst all of these flocks, raise their head, slowly turn around. They come to the boy, exit the area, and follow him home. Every one of her sheep. And this is what Jesus describes here. When he calls his own by name, he is calling them out of bondage. 
He's calling his children out of slavery. But what are we in bondage to? Well, in Romans 6, it describes salvation as delivering us from bondage to sin. Sin no longer has a grip on us. Amen? Hebrews chapter 2 says that salvation means to be delivered from the bondage of death. Death is no longer final over us. Death has been conquered. Galatians 1 says that salvation is deliverance from the bondage to evil. Satan no longer has a grip over us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that salvation means that we are saved from ourselves. We are no longer the masters of our own lives. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong wholly to Christ. But in the context here, the sheep need to also be rescued from the thief. But the question is, who is the thief? Who is this thief? And if you've been around the church for long enough, you know that over the years that this has been attributed to the devil. And you can make an argument that, yeah, the devil seeks to kill and steal and kill and destroy. But in the context here, the thief is not the devil. Jesus is not talking about the devil. So who's he talking about? Within the context here and who Jesus is speaking to, listen, this is striking. The thief is the religious system that places burdens on people and barriers in front of them. It's the religious system that keeps people in a state of limbo on the fringe, always keeping people at an arm's length and never allowing them to come in and experience the abundance of Jesus Christ. Who is the thief? It's the voice of our religious past that resounds in our minds saying, do more, become more, you'll never add up, earn your keep, you're a fake, you're a phony, you don't belong here, do this, a little more this, a little bit more that, a little bit more this, and then maybe you can stay. Jesus saves us from all of our religious baggage. Jesus saves us from all of our religious wounds. Jesus saves us from religious manipulation that we've seen and experienced. Jesus saves us from religious abuse. Jesus saves us from religious exclusion. All the ways that we have been robbed of God's abundance by the people and the places that should have offered it to us. Jesus delivers us. And what he's saying is, let me show you what real life is all about beyond the narrow walls of your negative experience and into the fullness and freedom of life that is found in me. And I believe that Jesus extends this invitation to us today with just as much power and just as much necessity and just as much relevance as when he spoke it in the first century. Jesus' voice is resounding now over his people. Jesus is gathering his people out of the wreckage of religious pasts, and he is continuing to do this right now. And the question for you is, will you respond to his call? Will you come? Will you step into his fullness? Will you abandon trying to make it in on your own good works, and will you receive God's acceptance by faith in Jesus Christ? Will you receive his record of good? Will you receive his sacrifice on your behalf? Will you receive his new life that comes to you by grace?
Will you receive it? Will you come in? Will you experience his abundance? What I want to do in closing is apply this sort of pastorally and really speak into our current moment as a church in our context. And the last theme that I want to look at here is that we are both encircled and free. What does it mean to be encircled and free? Because to enter into the fold of God is not to be trapped and isolated in a cooped up pen. But it's at the same time not about roaming around aimless and vulnerable in the world. In verse 9, Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. That's important. Coming in and going out. Within the walls of the fold and then back out into the open pasture. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. We gather, we scatter, we come in, we go out. A life that is neither stuck in the four walls nor about living apart from them completely. And there's an important balance that I think that we need to see and rediscover here, especially in the 21st century. Especially as we have new rhythms of gathering and we have new obstacles to gathering, a rhythm that I think is really important and a balance that I think Jesus expresses here. Because some people think that there should be no boundaries. There should be no lines of distinction, no organization, no commitments, no leaders, no membership, nothing resembling any four walls, nothing resembling anything institutional that's too restrictive, that's too constraining. But then others rely way too heavily on these things. They rely way too heavily on the four walls, relying on their theological tradition and knowing all the creeds and all of the confessions and having a strong church government and huddled up in this sort of insulated existence, this religious huddle with their their doctrine and their denominations living securely and safely within the structure. But the picture that we're given here in Jesus is that we are both encircled and we're free. There are walls and there's an open door. The Apostle Paul would describe the Christian existence like this in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to read from the King James Version because sometimes you just need the King James Version. For the love of Christ constraineth me. The love of Christ constrains me. Within this loving constraint, we discover freedom. And the question for us is, does this fit our vision of love? Is that even in our paradigm to believe that constraint fits into a conversation about love? It better when it comes to the love of Christ. I've shared this story before, but I think it's important and applicable. There was a team of uh, landscape architects that conducted a study of two different groups and they wanted to know the psychological and physical influences of having fences around playgrounds when they were designing playgrounds for children. So they took two groups, one group of teachers and students in a, in a uh, playground that had no fences and then a group of students and teachers in a playground with fences. And their findings were sort of like counterintuitive, the opposite of what you would think. What they found is that on the playgrounds without fences, 
The children tended to huddle in the middle. They were reluctant to stray far from each other. They were far less playful. They were far more timid. And they were just huddled up in the middle, afraid to explore. But in the playground where there were fences, where it was fenced in, however, they ran around the entire playground. They felt more free to explore. There was more observable joy. They were more adventurous and free. And the researchers concluded that spaces with clear boundaries, and in the case of these children with fences, they felt more at ease to explore their space. Boundaries aren't bad. Boundaries aren't restrictive. They're freeing. Some of you are learning that lesson with your in-laws currently. Some of those are learning those with some of your high school friends. Some of those are maybe even learning that, some of you are learning that lesson with some of your fellow believers. Boundaries are okay and can be healthy. And so for us, the lines of distinction, what are those lines? Clear, shared beliefs. Moral standards, obedience to the word, clear commitments to one another, a church government where we have qualified elders and deacons, a thorough membership process, a a time and a place where we all agree to gather and worship the Lord. And one day, by God's grace, even four walls that we have mortgaged and call our own. You resent the four walls, I am praying every single day for them. These lines of distinctions are not as some churches have used them to keep people out. And these lines of distinctions are not as some churches have used them to force people and keep people in. They're neither. They are intended to cultivate a place of growth and spiritual freedom and maturity. A place of order, 1 Corinthians 14, in a world that is disordered. A place where we intentionally are informed by God and then released out into an extremely chaotic world. Sent into the world with confidence and courage because we know that we are his. And we know who we belong to. And we know where we call home. So as I mentioned earlier, this is an opportunity for us to consider some things. One is the barriers to belonging that we have created, whether intentionally or unintentionally. This is an opportunity for us to consider who we can bring in. Our children right now are learning that God has called every single one of his children fishers of men. And they are going to be intentionally praying about the next person they're telling about Jesus. What about us? Who has God put in our lives to bring into the fold, into Christ's abundance. This is an opportunity for us also to consider the flock that we are a part of, the flock that God has made us a part of in the local church, the fold that God has brought us into. This is an opportunity to seek to be involved and to stay involved. There are so many people, especially in this season, that are content to linger on the fence. But there's nothing here in Jesus' discourse in this statement about I am the door about a Christian life and a Christian existence lived on the fence. It's come in and experience abundance. You've received the invitation. If you linger, that is on you. 
I think the call that Jesus is giving all of us today is to jump in. To come in and experience what real life and real abundance is within his fold, within his flock, within his church. There are a number of ways you can take a next step in that today. For some of you, it's trusting in Jesus Christ for the first time. For some of you, it's taking that courageous step of being baptized and saying, I identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am no longer my own, I am his. Another way you can get involved is take our foundations class. I don't know about Jesus, I wanna know more about the Christian faith, come to the foundations class. Another way that you can take a step is by becoming a member, enter into our membership process. You've been lingering too long in that discomfort of being on the fence. Join. Or another way is just simply after the service. Come and introduce yourself to one of the leaders that will be up on my right and to your left. And just come and simply introduce yourself. Say, this is my name. This is my story. And I need prayer. And I, I need Jesus in my, my life. I need his abundance to overwhelm my lack. Take these steps. They're open before you. The invitation is clear. Come in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your...